You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Tested. This series explores the book of 1 Peter to learn how we can respond when our faith is tested. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. My name is Brian Mowry, lead pastor here. Uh, if you're new with us, we're in a series uh, out of the, the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, called tested and and the reason why we call it tested is just seeing the bigger theme of first peter if you kind of back up and kind of look at what peter's trying to say you know this view from thirty thousand feet he's communicating to a group of of believers that were scattered and uh he he's that were suffering and they're kind of getting confused like why is this happening to us and so he's, he's coming to them and he's um He's saying, hey, look, don't, don't be caught off guard by what's happening to you as, as if something strange were happening to you. You know, God's not on vacation. Uh, he didn't take an extra long nap. He, he knows what's going on. This is all part of his plan. And, uh, he, so he comes to them to try to encourage them in their suffering. And what he doesn't do, he doesn't do anything, you know, small and pithy. He doesn't say like, hey, look, you know, there's a, there's a, a silver lining to every cloud. And he doesn't say, hey, look, I know things are going bad, but let me tell you about all the things that are going good that are, you know, it's better than the bad thing. He doesn't do that, but he says, look, there's actually a, a purpose in your suffering and, there, and, and, and there's going to be some things that are going to happen to you that you'll be better off having gone through the suffering than you hadn't suffered at all. What's happening to you isn't going to make you small. What's happening to you is going to make you great. You know, suffering's like this fiery furnace. And when you, you're not going to go through this and become ash, you're going to go through this and become gold. And so if, and if we ha- he's saying, look, if you've got your perspective right, on who God is. If you know that you are a Christian, you know that God has has saved you, only good things can happen to you. And you, you can have a life full of joy. And as a good communicator, and Peter is a good communicator, every good communicator anticipates like the objections that are coming at him as he's beginning to speak. And one of the objections that he picks up on is um, people that are reading this letter, maybe you're like this today, thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm a Christian I know that I'm a Christian, but I'm not experiencing joy. So what's going on with this, Peter? And that's why he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation. Peter's like, okay, let's talk about this salvation a little bit. Let's, let's double click on this salvation. Let me explain a little bit what's going on here. And so he begins to do that in these few verses. He begins to amplify our view of the gospel. And what he says here, just firstly, he says the prophets, if you have your Bible there open, to the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. First of all, is the gospel yours? Is this grace yours? I don't want to just kind of fly over that and we'll get to some broader understanding of the gospel. But first of all, is it yours? Uh, do you know about your need for salvation? And there's a difference between um, knowing your need for salvation and needing salvation. Like a few, five years ago, an F5 tornado went through Joplin and there were people minutes before that tornado hit who didn't know their need to be saved, but they had that need nonetheless. A a plane could be losing altitude as we speak. It could come into this building. We don't feel the need to be saved. By the way, I don't think there is, but unless someone could come running in here and shouting, if he does, then we should go, but... You, you, you may not feel your need for salvation. It doesn't mean that you don't have a need for salvation. Jesus says that we don't know the hour or the time, but there, there is definitely a need to be saved. And my first question is, have you, has this grace come to you? Grace is a gift. Have you received this gift? If you haven't, there's going to be an opportunity for you today to receive that 
gift. But if you have received this gift of salvation, that is the gospel, Peter is going to say that the gospel, that this message of salvation, isn't just something we kind of put in our back pocket after we become a Christian and forget about it. But he's saying like this, the gospel and, and how we become Christian, this is to be uh, very much front and center, um, not just in the beginning, but all throughout our Christian life. He says, because one of the things, he says, because of the prophets, were, this is something that they in search inquire about very carefully. But I think the real reason here is in verse 12. If you, if you um, look at verse 12, it says that the gospel is something that the angels long to look. The angels long to look. Now, we don't talk a lot about angels here, and, and maybe we should, but if an angel was to show up in this room here today, our noses would hit the carpet. We would be, there, there, we'd be so awe in the majesty and, and the strength of an angel that we'd be tempted to worship. These beings look at the gospel and are in awe. Do you look in the gospel with awe? They long to look. First of all, that Greek word that um, means long is an extremely strong word that means obsession. That, to be obsessed with it. And that word look is more than just, you know, a glance. It means to behold or to gaze. Something that really has your attention and you can't look away. Like, you know, like you would, you, the way that you would look at a beautiful fire, the way that you would look at a beautiful person, the way that you would look at a beautiful scenery. If you're a new mom, look the way that you would look at your newborn baby. It, it has your attention. You can't look away. These angels, these angelic beings are obsessively looking at the gospel and they cannot take their eyes away. What about you? Where are you at? Peter is saying that the angels are looking at the gospel this way and that you and I should be too. That, 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 it's, that all problems really come down to being gospel problems. That uh, there, there's not a, a wound that the gospel can't heal. There, there's not a, uh, a mood that we experience that the gospel can't turn to joy. There, there's not a, a strength that we need that the, the gospel cannot empower us through. If we lack joy in our circumstances, what Peter is saying is that we've taken our gaze away from the gospel onto something else. Absolutely huge. Okay, so what is the gospel? Something, it's just the beginning point of salvation. You know, it's the ABCs of Christianity. It's, it's like this basic information. Except that the angels, I would say, are pretty smart. Pretty smart. Wouldn't you say? Pretty smart. And, and I guess pretty disciplined. My guess, it's pretty chop-chop in heaven. There's not a lot of things where like, hey, I'll get to that when I get to that. I'm, I'm sure if, 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 the, if a decree goes out, it, it happens. So they're pretty disciplined. So the gospel has to be more than just information because you can look into a body of information and, and it only holds its intrigue for so long. I mean, after a few thousand years, you know, you think that you'd master it. If you've got discipline and you've got, you know, uh, half a, you know, you could memorize, in fact, the gospel if it's just a body of information. But it's more than that. Do you feel like you know the gospel? Do you have this thing where you're like, come on, can we move past the God? You know, like I've passed first grade. Can we like talk about something a little bit deeper than the God? I just want to lovingly push back on that and just say that's not a sign of maturity. It's a sign of immaturity. I, uh, a while ago, a long time ago, I used to be a uh, J-Kids teacher. You believe that? 
And uh, we did not do background checks back then. And so we, <laughs> and so, but inevitably, you, you'd have this like, this kid, there's certainly, among the group, there'd be this kid that, you know, maybe has been in church a long time, and you're, you're trying to tell this story, and you're talking about maybe, you know, J- Jesus dying on the cross. You're like, we know that. Don't you know that I know that? Don't you know that I know that Jesus died? Don't you know? We, we know that Jesus did these miracles. We know that he, he forgives our sins. We know that, you know, he heals blind people. Why are we going over this again? Adults are the same way. Same way. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know about God's forgiveness. I know that I, I have this new identity in Christ. I know that these these present sufferings are not you know worthy of comparing to the eternal weight of glory that God has for us in advance. And I, I know all that. Okay, if you know about the gospel, if you know about God's forgiveness, why are you so bitter? If you know about the fact that He gives you this new identity, why do you care what people think about you? Man, if, if, if the king of the universe says this about you, why do you care that this person says this about you? Why do you care so much about your dress sites? Why do you care so much about your position at work or amongst your friends? Why do you care about that? Why is it so important to you that you live a comfortable life? If you know the gospel. The truth is, you don't know, fully know the gospel. I don't fully know the gospel. The angels it's okay. The angels don't even fully know the gospel. Because the body, excuse me, the, the gospel is not a, a body of information. It's like a kaleidoscope of endless insights of the implications of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, it's, it's not like looking at, you know, lines of information, but it's looking into this prism that just has all these angles and contours to it. It's why the angels are obsessively gazing Upon Okay, so if it's not a body information, what is it? Well, verse 12, it says that, the, that long ago that the, they announced this. They announced uh, uh, that the, uh, about Jesus. They announced things about Jesus. And that word announce means to report, that the gospel is a report. It's a report about an event, a historic event. It's not, the gospel is not primarily ethics. It's not uh, a code of morality. Uh, the, it says here that the prophets uh, talked about there would be circumstances there would be a situation, a time and a place where the Messiah would step onto the scene and, and accomplish something. The gospel is a report. And what is a reporter's job? A reporter's job is to tell us the facts, tell us what happened. The essence of the gospel is not a teaching. The essence of the gospel isn't how to live a better life. It's not ethics. It's not morality. Now, the gospel leads to those things. It leads to wisdom it leads to ethics, it leads to morality, but at its essence, the gospel is a report about an event. The, in fact, that word gospel means good news. And so in ancient times, heralds would come riding the horses through, that's how you ride horses, it's riding through town, and they would declare, they would herald good news. Hey, we won the war. Hey, the king abolished taxes. Or whatever they would, they would herald about a good event that would, of course, have massive implications. But they would herald a, a, about an event. Uh, heralds would not come in town and say, "Hey, good news! A penny saved is a penny earned." Good news! You are what you eat. Uh, that wasn't what they would, they, or not even throw this in Bible terms. Hey, good news! Love your neighbor as yourself. Good news! Turn the other cheek. 
Heralds did not come with wise sayings or philosophies. They came saying something has happened in history. And because this has happened in history, everything changes. Everything changes. Because of the good news, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Because of the good news, uh, you should turn the other cheek. Because of the good news of Jesus Christ and his cross and his death and his resurrection and his defeat over the grave, that should lead to a kind of life. But in its essence, the gospel isn't trying to live up to some standard, but it is a response. It's a life of response of an event that's happened in history and outside of you, independent of you. And because when you think about it, I mean, the, 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 the example of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus without the sacrifice of Jesus is not good news. Just isn't. It's suffocating. He damns us with every word. He damns us with every act of righteousness if the good news is just teaching, if it's just a moral example. In fact, if you're new here trying to figure us out, you're like, man, I'm just here because I'd like to, you know, I'd like to a uh, positive example for my kids and I'd like to, uh, a new code of ethics. And I'd like to do better with my life. Man, you're on the wrong place. You should go find a, a religion that is about a code of ethics, that is about a, uh, it, it is about a moral teaching. Because the standard that Jesus set is like way super high and it will depress you before it will encourage you. But the good news is that it's, that's not what it is. It, the good news is that it's something that Jesus has done, not something that I'm trying to do. So if you're, we want to try to figure out what we're doing here is we're trying to live lives and organize ourselves, uh, individually and collectively in response to the good news, in response to this great event that happened outside, something we never asked Jesus to do. We never asked, he just did it because he loved us and because he did this, because he lived this life, because he died this death. This has massive implications. It means that I'm free from the penalty of sin and I can be free presently from the power of sin. And that one day he will completely remove the presence of sin. And this, this, this means that I'm free from myself. I'm free from trying to make a name for myself. I'm free from trying to justify myself. He's justified me. I'm, I'm, free, I'm free from trying to uh, work out the guilt that I feel inside of me because he's removed that guilt. I'm, I'm free from the shame that I feel because he's removed that shame from me. I'm free from feeling like I have to be, attain some certain righteousness because the truth is of the gospel that because he died in our place and he rose to new life, all the righteousness that he accomplished is now my righteousness. So it's, as of though that I did turn the other cheek. It's as of though that I, that I did love my neighbor as myself. Even though I constantly fail. That's why it's good news. Because Jesus has done something on our behalf. Without the gospel, the Christian life is penetrable and does not hold up under trial. If you're, if, if when life is squeezing you and, and pressure is, is coming in on you, if the foundation of your life was, well, I'm a good person and I do good things and I have a good job and, you know, I'm smart and, and I pay my taxes and I do all the right stuff and I go to church and I follow, you know, the teachings of Jesus most of the time or at least better than the person next to me, that is very a fragile foundation and it falls and it comes to ash under the fiery trial. But if your foundation is Jesus Christ has done something for me, outside of me, and despite me, that under trial becomes gold. And it turns something, it turns a point of suffering, it turns a 
something that could be embitter you and, and makes you it makes you better. It bring, and actually does what it says of Jesus. It says that Jesus, that in his sufferings and his subsequent glory, that's what happens to you. That your sufferings become subsequent glories for you. That's something that Jesus has done outside of you. Armed with the gospel, your life is impenetrable. So how do you gaze upon the gospel? To do this, you need to read your Bible. That's it right there. You need to read your Bible. This is like the way too obvious message that's not always obvious. That's what this message is if you're taking notes. You have to read the Bible. My son is a very straightforward little man. And uh, I was doing his interview uh, his, he's getting baptized in two weeks, which is super exciting for his, his mom and I. Um, and I was doing his baptism interview yesterday in his room. And I said, hey, Simon, so tell us why you know Jesus is real and he's your savior. And he looked at me like puzzled. Like, you don't know the answer? <laughs> and he says, because I read my Bible. And that was it. I'm like, I'm going to say that tomorrow. <laughs> it's true. There's things that you, the gaze, it's, it's reading. So first of all, it's reading the Bible. You need to read the, old, the, the prophets in the Old Testament. You need to read the apostles' writing in the New Testament. In verse 10, we see that the prophets foretold it in kind of a shadowy way. They, they longed to see it, but the intel they got from the Spirit of God was veiled. And so they didn't quite see it. Uh, as clearly as the New Testament writers. However, the same spirit that was speaking to the prophets were also speaking to the apostles and they preached uh, through the empowerment of the spirit and that became part of the, the scriptures. And this leads us to one of the amazing and most fundamental doctrines of the scripture and that is the Bible is the Holy and Spirit-inspired word of God. That men wrote scripture, they use their native language and at some level use their own cognition or their understanding of where their, you know, their time and place. However, what is consistent from Genesis to Revelation is it's inspired by the spirit of God. You can see this is a great place to kind of look at this is in Acts 425 that says, says this, it says, who through the mouth of our father, David, David was a human being just like you and I says who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy spirit and then quotes Psalm two. What he's saying here is like David wrote it. The Holy spirit said it through him and we know it as Psalm two. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors over the period of about 1,500 years. There's history, there's poetry, there's philosophy, uh, there's prophecy. Uh, the Bible is incredibly diverse. I mean, it's, it's unlike any writing known to man. It's incredibly diverse, but yet it has unbelievable unity because it was written by the Holy Spirit. And this unity is the ultimate, um, is one of the ultimate reasons why we say like the Bible is our authority because we believe that it is the words of God. It has authority over our thoughts. It has authority over our, our philosophy. It has authority over our actions to gaze into the gospel. Number one means we need to read the Bible, but it also means that we need to trust the Bible. You have to trust it. Now, I don't think you have to believe every word the Bible says in order to be a Christian. 
But I do think you have to believe every word of the Bible to be a consistent Christian. I do believe you have to believe every word of the Bible to be a joyful Christian. Because at the end of the day, you have to choose what, what is going to be your authority. And you have two basic choices. God's word or you. And I've used this analogy before, but uh, when, I was 20, when I was 25, I would look at 20-year-old Brian and I would say, that kid was a moron. Um, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know what he was wearing. I don't know what he was saying. But, you know, I would just look at 20-year-old Brian and be like, please don't do that. Please don't, please don't say it. But hey, 25-year-old Brian is brilliant. 25-year-old, 20, I mean, top of the world. You know, I was foolish once, but now I've, I've arrived. And then, I, and then I get to 30-year-old Brian. I look back at 25, and I'm like, what an idiot. And <laughs> hey, but 30, I mean, 30s, you know, that 30s pretty. I, now I've got it. Well, 40-year-old Brian looks at 30-year-old Brian the same way. And I'm beginning to pick up, I'm a little slow, but I'm beginning to pick up on the fact that when I look back in my past, I see things that I, I there's things I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have thought certain ways, I shouldn't have acted a certain way, I shouldn't have felt a certain way, shouldn't have done certain things. Every point I look back and I'm like, man, I, I thought I knew, but I didn't know. And I'm sure you're the same way. Why in the world would we make that our authority? When we know when we know that that is bad. So maybe you're at this place where like, I just can't quite, tr- I don't know if I can trust the Bible. Well, you, you at least need to admit that you cannot trust yourself. You at least need, and then maybe, just maybe, that'll help you trust something. Hey, here's the good news, is that we, we have, you, you can explore this, we don't have time to get into this today, but you can, we, have, we have lots of reasons to believe uh, in the uh, authority of Scripture. But you gotta, you gotta trust something. You gotta make something the authority. And... To be a consistent, joyful person, you can trust the scriptures. There's another doctrine here about the scriptures that is tucked away in this passage that really ties into our theme about gazing into the scripture that I think is really helpful in order to understand that that the gospel isn't just helpful for the point of salvation, but really all throughout our life. And that is all of the Bible is really about Jesus. That's what Peter says. It's all about his sufferings. And subsequent glories. According to Peter and actually Jesus in Acts 24, which I'll mention this here in a second, that all scriptures are really about him. The prophecies are about Jesus. In Genesis 3, we find out that this Messiah is going to be a human. That is Jesus. Isaiah 9 says that he's the mighty God, but he's also the wonderful counselor. He is Emmanuel. He is, he is God, but he is God with us. Isaiah 53 prophesies how the Messiah would suffer. Uh, and we're told in Psalm 16, that the, that this Messiah would, would rise again. That there's just endless prophecies about Jesus. The prophecies are about Leviticus, Leviticus is about Jesus. You know that? That the lamb, that the, a lamb was slain to atone for sins, but John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on the scene, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That he is the Lamb of God. That he is the bread of life. That he is the temple of God. The law is about Jesus. The law tells us about the moral excellence of Jesus. That he fulfilled it all. When you read through the Pentateuch. When you read through the early parts of the Old Testament. And you see all of the law. and all You begin to see every... Jesus fulfilled that one. Jesus fulfilled that one. Jesus fulfilled that one. When Jesus came on the scene and began to talk about grace, he said, he, he said, look, I haven't, grace isn't me coming to abolish the law. Grace is me coming to fulfill the law. And if you trust in me, the law is fulfilled for you through me. 
So when you read through Leviticus and you read all these laws and oh my gosh, who could ever do that? He did it. He did it. The law is all about his righteousness that's imputed to you and I when we trust him as our savior. Israel is about Jesus. Israel itself, God chose a people group and says, okay, I want you to be my people and you're going to obey me and you're going to love me. We're going to have this relationship and I'm going to be God and you're going to, you're going to be you and you're going to obey me. And so he starts with that. Well, guess what? They don't obey him. They don't obey him. And so like a big chunk of them, they don't get to go into the promised land. And, and then they're like, okay, what about you? Are you guys going to obey me? And they, they still don't obey him. And so he, they, they go into exile into Babylon. And then only a remnant out of that blast. And it just, it just keeps like a Russian doll. just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's like, you know, who's going to get this right? Is anybody ever going to get this right? And it just keeps going down until in the end, according to the New Testament, who among Israel fulfills the covenant. How many people are left? There's just one, according to the New Testament. His name begins with J, ends with S. Jesus is the remnant of Israel. It says in Galatians 3.16, now promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And the writer makes the point, it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. This means that all the promises and all the blessings given to Abraham and, and the children. As you read the Old Testament. Like what is all this talking about? Well it's talking all these promises and, and all these uh, blessings that come to Abraham. Are, are, they all belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus inherits all the promises. Jesus inherits all the blessings. And guess what? So do you and I if we are in a relationship with Christ. Everything is Christ and Christ is ours if we are in him. He is, is, Tim Keller has been, he's a pastor in New York. He's been super helpful to me in understanding this point. I just want to read some things that he rattled off about how you see Jesus in the Old Testament. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed a test in the garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is ascribed to us. He's the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. He's a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all that comfortable and familiar and go out into the void and create a new people. He's a true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us all. And while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, now at the foot of cross, we can say to God, now I know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your, very, your only son. He's a true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save him. He's a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and our God and mediates a new covenant. He's the true and better Job who intercedes and saves his stupid friends. He's a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory even though they never lift a stone to accomplish it themselves. He's a true and better Jonah who is cast out into the storm so that we can be brought in. He's a true and better Passover lamb, innocent and perfect and was slain so the angel of death will pass us over and on and on and on. But this wasn't Tim Keller's idea. This was Jesus's. He says this in Luke twenty four forty four. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything in the law of Moses and the prophets is about 
when you see that Jesus is in all of scripture, you can begin to like gaze about the wonder of all that he is and all of what he's done for us. And, and that the Bible isn't just some random, you know, sayings that how does this apply to my life? How does the Leviticus apply to my life? How does this, this narrative of the Israelites that was a real, is a real people, how does this play? It's, you see Jesus in it and it just comes to life and you begin to gaze upon the, the layers and the layers and the layers and the layers and the layers of the gospel and you begin to understand, ah, oh, this is why. This is why the angels are obsessively gazing because there's just layers of truth. It's like this, like a diamond. You know, you look into a diamond, you see all the edges and how the light shines off of it and it just gets more beautiful and beautiful the more that you look at it and the more that you see it from all different angles. As you begin to see Jesus and everything. Salvation isn't only a one-time event. It is an event in history in which he saved us from the penalty of sin. But man, we continue need to be saved. We need to be saved from our unbelief. We need to be saved from lies. We need to be saved not from our suffering, but the per- we need to be saved in, in thinking that there's no purpose in our suffering. We need to be saved from the, from the power of sin in our life. And looking to Jesus saves us from the penalty. Looking to Jesus saves us from the power, this present thing that we're experiencing. And so we, we never get past the gospel. We never get past it looking at our salvation because it's, it's always happening until one day it happens in its fullness. Where it says that, you know, we will, the gospel will be right in front of us. That we will see him and we'll become like him. That we will see the light that is Jesus that shines brighter than the sun and he will abolish all presence of sin. He will wipe away every tear. He will get rid of death and disease and all the things that haunt us and we'll be with him forever. The gospel is way more than information. It is an event. It's something that Jesus has done on our behalf outside of us and it just has layers upon layers and it really is true. It really is true that as we keep our gaze on the gospel, that our sufferings will become glory, that we can be full of joy as we look to this great salvation.